welcome everyone to do well and do good. You're here because you have the desire to create financial freedom, but you also want to make a powerful positive impact on the world. This podcast exists to tell the inspiring stories of men and women who have achieved both, people who do well and do good. I'm your host, Dorothy Ilson, and I'm here to help you discover proof that individuals have the ability to make a massive impact. everybody and welcome back to the show. I am so excited to introduce to you today's guest, Bud Lethbridge, serial entrepreneur and founder of asset protection firm Vail Corporate. But before I tell you more about Bud, today's episode is brought to you by Needles Eye Media, the premier media buying partner for seven-figure personal brands and other digital product businesses who are looking to scale with paid traffic. So if you or someone you know is currently spending $10,000 per month or more on paid traffic, but needs a partner with a strategy and execution to help you scale, then reach out to me or head to our website at needleseyemedia.com. Now, without further ado, I first heard of Bud Lethbridge when I attended a training seminar in Utah. Bud was actually brought in to teach the group the basics of asset protection. And while I didn't go to Utah to learn that topic, it quickly became apparent that it was far and away the most valuable part of the event without question. Now that was when I knew I had to have Bud on the show and in his successful entrepreneurial career now spanning four decades, he's launched over a dozen companies and currently owns businesses in software, real estate, and in the legal and, and financial services industry, Vail being just one of those. So Bud, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to have you here. I'm so, so excited to be with you and uh, just excited to see how this all unveils and hopefully to be helpful to somebody out there. Well, I know that you will because, you know, it's so interesting. You can talk to tens of thousands of business coaches and gurus about how to make money, but hardly anyone is teaching these critical strategies of, you know, how to ensure that no one can take that money away from you. And, and that's something that, you know, really no one understands more deeply than you. And I've, I've just started to, you know, really scratch the surface of that understanding now as a client of Vail myself. Yeah. And, and as you learned, we really focus on two areas of losing our money. And one of them is that we're losing it through the, the tax code because we don't understand how the tax code works. And so I try to teach people how the code works, try to teach them how to use proper structure to be able to use that tax code to our advantage. Even if we're not making a lot of money, we're giving too much of it away. And then everybody knows how litigious our society is. But one of the things that happens is, you know, because one person out there could be sued three times, you could be 50 years old and say, but I've never been sued. The problem is it's like playing a game of, of dice, right? It could happen anytime. And when it happens today, the numbers are getting so huge. You know, the, there was a case, I didn't talk about it this, this in your workshop, but there was a case recently with a 13 year old girl whose parents were killed and they ended up awarding her $1.5 billion. Now, if we set aside the sympathy for this young girl, because we should all have sympathy, empathy, I mean, it's a terrible situation. The point is not that, it's that, wait a second, 1.5 billion? Um, $10 million would have taken care of this girl. She'd be wealthier than she could ever imagine for the rest of her life. But juries and, and, and judges are giving away these huge sums of money that are making insurance 
obsolete. I mean, we can't buy enough insurance to protect ourselves. And so that's where asset protection really becomes a key element. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think what was so eye-opening to me, you know, really on, on both, both of those sides of your presentation on the tax side, first of all, you know, I had several moments throughout your presentation where I'm just thinking, you know, why the hell hasn't my accountant told me about this? And, and then, you know, on the, the litigation side, it's, it's just something that you don't think about until you need to think about it. And at that point it's too late. And so, you know, I really want to dive into more of the specifics around that. But before we do that, I'd love to just go a bit into, you know, your journey as an entrepreneur. So, you know, set the stage for us first, you know, what was life like for you growing up and what was the mindset around money and success that was instilled in you as a child? You know, it's interesting, Dorothy, because there's a, a very, very popular book out there by Robert Kiyosaki. It's called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah. And for those in your audience that haven't, he chronicles his journey as a kid in Hawaii. Uh, his father was a very upper middle class guy, but, but uh, just had a job for about 40 years. Mm -hmm. And then his friend's dad, who was a business owner, and he doesn't say in the book, but if you've ever been to Hawaii, there's a, on every corner, everywhere you go, there's an ABC store. And that is what his friend's dad owns and very, very wealthy. And so he talked about how, what he learned from these two dads. Well, interestingly enough, long before that book ever came, uh, and, and I feel like I could have written it, but, he, but Kiyosaki beat me to it. My dad uh, worked for a bakery. He was there for about 40 years. He was a delivery driver. So this bakery would bake bread and butt, hamburger buns and whatnot, and he would deliver it to the restaurants. Very blue-collar guy. We were probably lower middle class, but nevertheless middle class folks. And never had a lot of money, but we, but we were fine. You know, we weren't poor. I mean, I didn't have, I have nothing to complain about in my upbringing, but I listened to the fights that my mom and dad had over money. Cause we can't do this. We can't buy that. We can't afford this. Um, you know, we were struggling to pay the mortgage. My dad always had a second job, occasionally had a third job. I'm the youngest of six kids and my oldest sister married a guy who was an entrepreneur. I mean, he was a business owner from the get go. And he had met a gentleman in the South who, who owned a street sweeper. So he was this guy who just went along the curb and would, and would sweep, but he contracted with the city and he owned the street sweeper. And so my brother talked to this guy, again, he's from the South, had a little bit of an accent. And this guy had a phrase, he said, don't matter what you do, as long as you're the boss. <laughs> and so from the time I was little, this, this brother-in-law is 18 years older than me. So not, not maybe not quite old enough to be my father, but definitely a father figure. So in my book, you would say there's, I have these two fathers, the one being my dad, the other one being my brother-in-law. And I'm watching my dad with all these financial struggles. And I'm listening to my brother-in-law who says, Hey, don't matter what you do, as long as you're the boss. And I watched him start several businesses and I watched his success. I watched my dad who, you know, would have to go to a boss and ask for time off. I watched my brother-in-law who would take time off that he wanted. If he wanted to go to a ball game, he bought uh, season tickets to the Dodgers. And he would take me, you know, from the time I was a kid through my teenage years, even into my young adult years, we'd go to Dodger Stadium together. And he had that, he had that time freedom. I, I watched him grow his business and he could decide how big he wanted that business by how hard he wanted to work and the strategies that he implemented. And so that really was my story of my boyhood, watching these two men and, and then saying to myself, 
yeah, I want to be that boss that he talked about. I want to own my own business. I want to have that freedom. And so I set a goal, which, which I met, which was to never have a job. And so I've never been an employee, never had a job, always done my own thing. And it's not for everybody. And, and I'm sure my brother-in-law had tough times that I didn't see because I certainly had tough times in my business. But I wouldn't trade it for the world. And that really shaped those early years of me deciding to go down the business road rather than working for somebody else. What an incredible story and, and a gift to have a mentor like that, you know, as you grew up. So, you know, what then, what was your first business? You know, did you have an idea of, you know, the direction that you wanted to go as an entrepreneur? Well, that's another crazy story, Dorothy, because <laughs> when I was 14, I had another mentor in my life, um, not from a business point of view. He was in his early 20s and he was just a really cool guy who took me under his wing. I was 14. And he said, would you be interested in hang gliding? And hang gliding was a very new sport to the U.S. at that time. This was, I'm an old guy, this is 1974. And I said, heck yeah. Well, I went to my mom and I said, hey, I want to hang glide. And my mom, after raising six kids, I think her philosophy was, hey, if it's not drugs or alcohol, heck yeah, go do it, you know? <laughs> and so I, I, I started hang gliding with this, with this guy. And it was exhilarating. It was incredible. It was something that, you know, most older people would love to do, but I'm a young kid and I'm doing this and I was successful at it. Well, I needed to have my own glider. And it was at that time, it was $1,500. And that was, that was more than all the money in the world to me. And I'm 14. I'm not even old enough to get a job, even if I'd wanted a job. So with the influences of my brother-in-law combined with this incredible desire to buy something that my parents couldn't buy for me, I didn't have the money. They didn't have the money. My first business was I put together a stencil kit with some paint and I started going down the street, knocking doors and said, Hey, I'll paint the address on your curve. And uh, I said, I'll do it for three bucks. And if they said no, I said, well, I'll do it for two fifty. <laughs> and if they said no, well, I said, give me two bucks. And I was so persistent. I was just painting every curve and I started getting pretty good at it. And I started figuring out, Hey, if I was knocking doors, I could pay a couple of my buddies to do the painting and I'd give them a buck, I'd make two. And all of a sudden I started to learn about leverage. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was my very first business. I actually did quite well. In fact, I, I, I did that through college, that business and uh, wow. uh, paid my way. So needless to say, you got your hang glider. I got my hang glider in 1974, that same year, uh, made, made about $2,000 in a very short period of time, which was a lot of money. And I bought that hang glider. I actually went to the nationals in San Diego in 1984 as, or as the, as 1974 as the youngest hang glider in the country. It was pretty cool. <laughs> what an incredible story. And, and the fact that you, you figured out the, the key to business, which is leverage, you know, understanding that at such an early age is powerful. So, you know, but you have had just such an incredible journey as an entrepreneur. You've had so many different businesses. So I know we can't even begin to go through the story of all of them, but you know, one thing I've discovered through these interviews is that we really do learn so much more from our failures than we do from our successes. So I'm curious, you know, what was one of your most challenging moments or a time where, you know, perhaps you felt like you'd failed as an entrepreneur? Yeah. So I, that's, uh, man, I don't even have to hesitate to answer that question because it comes back so clear in my mind. I was in my early twenties. I had now married 
Um, I got married at 22, so I was young. And uh, I had started um, I had started a little business with a friend. We It was actually an accounting business. I had no accounting background. So I was going out marketing the business. And we had gotten some accounts and enough that we had gotten an office. And we had a couple of employees. We actually had two CPAs working for us. Uh, this partner of mine, I had a receptionist. And um, as we built the business, sometimes, you know, you build and your overhead is growing a little faster than your, than your receivables and whatnot. And so we got into a situation at one point where we barely had made payroll. Um, I didn't have any money to pay myself. I remember I was at the office and my wife called and she said, hey, we don't have any groceries. Um, bring some food home tonight. And I have at this point a little daughter and I was thinking, you know what? I don't think I have enough gas in my car to get home. I don't, my wife's asking me to bring home groceries and I looked at my bank account and I didn't have any money in my bank account. I had taken money out of my personal account to lend to the business to make sure we made payroll. So the business was broke. I was broke. We were broke as a family. And I'm looking at it and going, what do I do? You know? To this day, I can't tell you what I did. I don't remember exactly how that all unfolded. But if there was a lesson there, I guess the lesson was two things. First of all, um, I learned about something called empathy. Um, it, it changed the way I thought about other people. I think because I had started out really young in business and I had done pretty well, you know, with, with some of the things I had done as a young adult in business, I was a little cocky and maybe this was my reminder that, Hey, count your blessings. And remember that even if you're doing well, there's other people out there who aren't things turned around pretty quickly and. You know, we got through that time. Like I said, I don't remember exactly all the circumstances, but we got through it. And, you know, I've had a really good life. But it was a time when, at least for a moment, I was able to think, you know what? There's people out there who are trying to figure out how to just pay the bill or how to just get their next meal. And it, it reminded me that in our journey, you know, we've got to have some compassion for people out there, too. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm so grateful to you that you shared that story because, you know, I think that it's, it's a situation that is, first of all, easy to get into for sure. And it's so easy to, you know, look at someone like yourself, who's had that kind of a career and to, you know, just kind of assume that, that it's been successful the whole way through, you know, that there haven't been these, these ups and downs. And when you're in the grind, you know, when you're in that moment where you feel like maybe, you know, do I have what it takes? Uh, you know, I think there's nothing more valuable than, than hearing from someone like yourself that, you know, it's something that just about everyone, you know, has to go through it at one time or another. Yeah, I agree. It happens. And, and probably the ones who aren't telling that story just aren't telling the whole story. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I also think that there's, uh, there's a certainly a cash management, um, you know, lesson to pull out of that. Um, you know, I know for me, my first year running the agency, I, uh, revenue was good. You know, I, I had success quickly. I got my first few clients and, and it just grew kind of faster than I uh, expected it to even. And then I went back and looked at my tax return at the end of the year and thought, what, where, what? <laughs> like I just, where did, all this where money did it go, all right? go? You know, yeah. I, I, I'm looking at the revenue. I was like, I 
made more money than I had any other year in my life by far, yet I didn't keep any of it. I was, I was basically broke. I had no savings. You know, I was still living month to month. And so it was a massive wake up call for me. And, you know, one thing, if you're listening to this and, uh, you know, you find that you're in that situation where you kind of just have your head in the sand when it comes to your finances, the thing that turned it around for me was the book Profit First by Mike Michalowicz, um, which is really just all about, you know, paying yourself first reserving your profit first and then making sure the expenses of the business, you know, fit into what's left. So, um, you know, I think that's, uh, that's, and, and since so you're, important. since you're throwing books out there and Dorothy, one, I think one of them for me in, in those early years, although I'm trying to remember what year I read it, but, uh, the millionaire next door, yeah. which, um, if you've read that, it really, um, it's about not living out on the edge that so many people who start making some money, you know, they are broke because they got to have the nicest car and the best house and the biggest boat and on and on and on. And all their money is going into depreciating assets back to Kiyosaki again there and uh, really learning that guess what? It's it. That's not the guy who's got all the money. The guy who's got all the money is a guy like Walton, you know, Walmart, mm -hmm. Sam Walton, who was, who's still driving his 72 pickup, who's still living in the same house that he bought in 1971, you know, who's a billionaire, but looks like the guy next door because he's sucking it away. Mm. You know, I have not read that book, but you are, you're one of a few people who's mentioned it. And so that is certainly next on my list now, but Moving into, you know, really what you're doing now with Vail, could you talked a little bit, you know, about the importance of asset protection, you know, why it's so critical. And I think, you know, most people, they think, you know, well, you know, I've got my business and my assets in an LLC, you know, isn't that enough that's supposed to create that protection? Why is that not enough? Yeah. So really there's two things that play into that. The first one is that most entities, and, and when I use the word entity, you mentioned LLC. We have a lot of different entities in this country. LLC is one of them. Uh, and it's one of the most common because it's very versatile, very flexible. And so it's probably the one that's being chosen the most today. Well, most of those LLCs are put together incorrectly. And when I say that, um, one of the things I teach is that the law is just a bunch of words. And the way those words are put together are what makes something secure and safe or not. So an LLC in and of itself really doesn't do anything. Anybody on the planet can go down to their state office, can fill out a form, can pay whatever the filing fee is for that state, and can set up an LLC. And it's really quite easy. I mean, I actually tell my clients, look, this is something you could do yourself. The question you have to ask is when you do it yourself, is it going to be set up correctly? And then they're asking, well, what does that mean? I mean, this, this brother-in-law that I talked about, when I set up my very first LLC, I went to him and I said, hey, how do you have your company set up? And he said, oh, I have an LLC. And I said, oh, sh can you show me the paperwork? Well, he pulls out his articles of organization and whatnot. So I take all of that. This is how long ago this is. And I use whiteout. I make a <laughs> copy of it. I white out all his information. I type with a typewriter in all my information. And I take it down to the state and I file it. I just took his docs and I filed it. Mm -hmm. Well, the problem with that is the state doesn't care what your entity says. The court cares. And so what it comes down to is 
are the words in there that are going to protect you. It's kind of similar to, you know, you and I had a conversation about uh, a little bit about your business and about things that are happening there and contractual deals that are going on. Well, you can write a contract, but an attorney is taught how to write things into a contract in a way that you and I wouldn't know how to do and to address things that you and I wouldn't even think of addressing. Well, the same thing goes into an LLC. So at my firm, Vail, we build LLCs and corporations and LLPs and FLPs. We build them in a completely different way. We word them, as you know, in a completely different way that is protective. And so most people out there who have an entity, they put their assets in the entity and they think, because I have assets in an entity, I'm protected. Mm-hmm. But you only are protected if that entity has been worded to be able to protect those assets. Mm-hmm. And then the second element is that we get into what we call entity structure. So we're not just going to have an entity. We're going to have a series of entities that are put together and, and work together in a specific way. And so all of that is what we do to protect our clients. You know, let's dive into a little bit more specifics here because you mentioned in that list, the FLP, the family limited partnership, and that I thought was just one of the most fascinating things that you taught about, uh, you know, in the seminar. So could you go a little bit into, you know, what an FLP is and how it can be so valuable? Yeah, well, the, the first, the first and critical element of a family limited partnership is the, the liability, uh, and how that's distributed. So we have what's called the general partner, we have what's called limited partners. And the general partner is the one who gets to make all the decisions and therefore has all the liability. The limited partners don't get to make decisions and therefore have no liability. So the beauty of that, sometimes a a similar version of an uh, FLP called an LLP, which is a limited liability partnership, uh, can be used in in a large property. Let's say I'm buying a 50-unit complex and I'm going to go out and solicit investors. Well, I'm running this deal, but you're coming in, in as an investor. So I would use this entity to say, look, you're going to be an owner, but you're not going to make decisions, and that's also going to give you protection. If I screw up, you don't have to worry because you have no liability. On the other hand, you can't take over my project because you have no authority. So there's a give and take protection that can be used in in an FLP or an LLP uh, in that way, the limited liability and the general liability. Um, But the other unique thing that, you know, people came up with years ago, it wasn't my original strategy, was to then, because this general partner had all the liability, to make them a very minimal holder of equity in, in the entity and to make the majority of the equity to, to have that lie in the, in the limited partner position. So that if there was a lawsuit, the general partner has the liability, but has very little ownership. So very little could be lost. Well, the idea would be that I could actually be both. So I could be down here or let's say my wife as a limited partner And then I'm up here as the general partner. You kind of get the idea. And so there's some protective elements there. So the FLP became a really early form of of protection. And then when we add, uh, and I I don't know that we want to take the time here to get into it, but when we add in some things that I taught you about, 
you know, pro rata versus non pro rata structuring, which again gets into the way we word that. It just becomes a very, very unique entity. Uh, and we're doing something that nobody else out there really has thought of, nobody else out there would think of, and it gives us some really unique protection. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the perfect level of depth because I think it would be easy for someone listening to think, you know, oh, this is just about, you know, wording your LLC correctly. Well, I can figure out online how to do that or, or whatever it might be. And so, you know, I, I wanted to open the open the door a little bit to help people understand that this goes deep. I mean, this is this is not just about how you're setting up LLCs. That's a part of it for sure. But, but there is just so much that goes into making sure that you're protected, not only only from things that you might do, uh, you know, but things that are completely out of your control. You know, maybe an employee of your business runs a red light and, uh, you know, gets in a car accident and kills someone. I mean, there are just an endless number of situations that you have absolutely no power over that can wipe out your business, wipe out your family's assets um, if you're not careful. And so, you know, one, one common objection that I think, you know, you probably hear a lot is from people who are, you know, maybe early in their entrepreneurial career or they're, you know, they're young, they're in their early twenties or, you know, they basically feel like, well, you know, I don't need this yet. You know, I, I don't have a lot of assets to protect. I don't have a, a ton of money or, you know, to, to put in a trust. So what would you say to that person about, you know, why they need to think about this now? I think the, the, uh, the best analogy that I like to use for that scenario is when you, when you set out to build a castle, uh, the first thing should be the moat. The moat is dug around that castle. If you, I use that because it's, everyone can, can image that in their minds very easily. And the moat, of course, was that ancient protection where, where we had, you know, whether it was water or just a bunch of mud, and it made it very difficult to get down through that and slower so that, you know, they could attack as people were coming through the moat and slow them down. Well, the idea of someone saying, hey, I, I don't have assets yet, so I'm going to go acquire assets, and then I'll figure out how to protect them, to me is the equivalent of building the castle without the moat. So we don't go out and acquire and then figure out later on how to protect. We should create asset protection structure. You know, if I had my brothers, I'd teach everybody how to do this when they were 20 and just starting out their life and then say, now, everything you're ever going to do in your life is going to be accumulated, is going to be acquired, is going to be purchased into this structure. And it also is a game changer because when you think about it, most people out there, everything they own, they own in their name. Naturally, how else would you own things? Mm -hmm. Of course, I own everything in my name, bud. That's what you do, right? And then I remind them, well, that also means that if there's a problem, one situation would completely wipe you out. You own everything. Everything is up for grabs. And in today's world, that's a very, very questionable and risky way to live our lives. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that, you know, since becoming a client of yours and, and really starting to dig into this, it has just opened up an entirely new world, you know, for, for me and my partner of understanding, you know, what we should be thinking about, you know, at this stage of our lives and our, our business and our relationship and, you know, how to make sure that we are protected moving forward. So, you know, there's just an absolutely insane amount of value in what you do. It's something that hardly anyone else even 
offers. I mean, if you go and try to research other companies doing this, you, you really don't find much. And so, you know, I really cannot begin to recommend Vail highly enough, uh, you know, and, and, and thank you for the way that you're helping us. So, you know, that's very kind. Thank you. <laughs> you're so welcome. Well, you know, I want to talk about something that you shared with the group at the seminar, um, really about the, the accident. You had a devastating accident that almost killed you. Uh, could you tell us what happened? Yeah, I was, um, I saw I'm a very adventurous guy. I mean, you, you name the, you name the sport, bungee jumping, skydiving, hang gliding, surfing, you know, I do it. And uh, so one of those sports is horseback riding. And I have a good friend who has a ranch uh, that I've gone to for many, many years with my family and his family. And we were, uh, we were at that ranch. They have five horses. And uh, he and his wife, myself and my wife, and my two youngest daughters who are both uh, early uh, in college. And one's a, I guess one's a junior and one's a freshman. Anyway, they, uh, they were with us. So six of us and five horses. So my wife said, hey, I'll, I'll stay home and I'll read a book and uh, back at the cabin, you guys go for a horse ride. And so we saddled up the horses, we took off. We've done this, you know, dozens and dozens of times, a very common thing. And uh, this particular day we said, well, let's, instead of just walking the horses, let's go for a nice run. And as we did so, my friend and his wife were ahead, my two daughters were behind. And so I turned in the saddle to look back at them and make sure they were doing okay. And uh, for reasons that we still don't know exactly, we think it could have been a snake, but my horse, as I'm backwards in the saddle, just put the brakes on and dropped its head. And I remember flying through the air. I remember turning upside down. I remember my head coming to the ground. I can even remember my head hitting the ground and the pain and, and a little noise that didn't sound good. And, uh, and all of a sudden I was out. When I came to, um, I couldn't breathe. I was laying on the ground conscious now and I couldn't get a breath. And I remember later asking the doctor, I said, Hey, I, I didn't fall on my back, which would knock the wind out of you. I said, so landing on my head, how would I get the wind knocked out of me? And my surgeon said, yeah, you didn't get the wind knocked out of you. Your lungs were paralyzed. I found out later that I'd broken my C2 and, um, and it was a full break um, on, on, a, and on your C2. You have a post that comes up and hooks onto the C1. And that post had completely snapped, had allowed the C1 to move and take my spinal cord with it, um, which should have resulted in my spinal cord breaking and I should have been dead. The, the surgeon called it a perfect storm that everything that could go wrong did go wrong, except I was alive. And uh, I was alive, but I was completely paralyzed, including my lungs and my voice box. So I couldn't breathe, I couldn't talk, I couldn't move. And uh, all I can say, and, and you know, there'll be those in your audience who will, who will say, ah, oh, that stuff doesn't happen, but I, I believe in miracles, and I feel like I received some miracles that day. And the first miracle was that I got a breath, and my family said I was almost purple at that point. Uh, very, you know, very scary. When you can't breathe, you know you're going to die, but that breath came, and that was a wonderful breath. And as I laid there and then could finally breathe, but still not talk, I began to try to mouth things to my family. Um, and probably within 10 minutes or so, I uh, laid there on the ground for about two hours. But uh, within about 10 minutes, my voice box released. Again, I call that miracle number two. And all of a sudden I could talk. And that's when I was able to tell them that I was paralyzed from the neck down. 
they, uh, I was in a really awkward position. You, in fact, they took a couple of pictures. I told everybody, I said, take some pictures of this once oh I can, once I can talk. And I said, well, you know, got to memorialize this moment. <laughs> and I was in a really awkward position and they said, let us roll you over. And I said, no. And I don't know why I had the presence of mind to say that, but I said, no, I said, don't move me. I said, um, but I do need you to call 911. This is not going to turn out good. And I knew that. I just had a sense of that. I knew I was paralyzed. And so uh, I was helicoptered, life flighted to the University of Utah, and, and uh, they had diagnosed my, my problem. And, you know, if anybody in the audience wants to go look up C2 break on the Internet, what, what it'll tell you is that C2 break results in death in most cases. Rarely it will result in quadriplegia, so you're a, a neck down uh, paralysis, including your lungs. So for those in your audience that might be old enough to remember a guy named Christopher Reeve who played Superman years ago, he had a similar accident on a horse, interestingly enough, and he was a quadriplegic, including his lungs. So he was on a ventilator that actually manually breathed on his behalf and until he passed away. But um, the doctor said, this is going to be your, your situation. And then, okay, so let's get on with it. So they did a surgery and the surgery was, was to put my vertebra back together. You can't do anything for the spinal cord. And so they said, we'll just have to see what your spinal cord wants to do. But the third miracle was that uh, over time, my body started waking up and I started getting feeling and that feeling came without control. So I started being able to move things, but kind of involuntarily. Uh, or I could move them, but I couldn't, you know, I could move my hand, but I couldn't make it do what I wanted it to do. Mm -hmm. A very strange feeling to, to yesterday, I could pick up a spoon and eat a bowl of cereal just fine. And today I can't do that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so I, I dealt with that. But interestingly enough, I dealt with it not for months, but just for days. And I got to the point where I, I became, uh, I just worked at it. And every day, the doctor would come in every day, literally on the hour, and would ask me to touch my nose with my, with my index finger. And of course, I couldn't. I would touch my cheek. I would touch my ear. I would miss my head completely. I couldn't control that finger. But after he came in three times within three hours, I thought, okay, that's a, that must be an important test that they're taking. So I would sit there for now the next hour, and as I'm talking with my family, I'm just practicing touching my nose. Mm -hmm. And can I do it? And I miss, but I, I, and the next time he came in, I was a lot better at it. And the next hour he came in, he said, what's going on? I said, well, you seem to think this is a big deal, so I'm practicing. And, uh, and that was, I think, kind of what drove my recovery, that and miracles, was that I just, whatever they, they tested me on, I would just practice and try to do that thing. And including try to, I would, my wife said, I, I got to feed you. And I said, no, nobody's going to feed me. I'll just practice. Mm -hmm. And if I can't pick up a spoon, eventually I will. And that's what happened. I spent hours trying to figure out how do you pick up a spoon? And then hours, how do I get the food to stay in the spoon? And then hours, how do I get that food and that spoon all the way up to my mouth? Mm. But, um, with, with practice and, and I'm a tenacious individual. I just kept at it. Uh, I was able to walk out of the hospital on my own two feet six days later. And, uh, it was, it truly was a miracle and is, it was only a year and a half ago that that happened. Yeah. So I'm still, I'm still recovering now, but I'm, I'm, I got back on a horse last week and went for a ride. And that was a kind of a psychological must do for mm -hmm. me. You know, when you get back off the horse, you get back on. 
it's, I mean, but it's just unbelievable. And this is obviously my, my second time now hearing this story, but it hits me just as hard as, as the first, I mean, it's, there is no word for it other than, than miracle. I mean, to be able to walk away from that and walk out of the hospital six days later and, you know, a year and a half later to be, you know, back to running your businesses the way that you are. I mean, it's, it's truly remarkable. And I have to imagine that experiencing something like that it's got to shift your worldview. I mean, I, I'm wondering how did it change the way that you operate as an entrepreneur, if at all? Yeah, Dorothy, that's an interesting question. I, I've wrestled with that a little bit. I'm not sure. I, I certainly am grateful and I, I hope I'm more grateful just for every day for all the simple things to have my family around me, the beautiful smell of a flower, you know, the, a, a gorgeous blue sky. Um, but I hope that in a lot of ways, I was that guy already. Um, I, I think it's heightened that a little bit, and, and, and you would think that's, that's what should happen. Um, I certainly am grateful, um, and, and probably more so, but I think that's probably the main thing I would identify. I ask myself all the time, what, what am I supposed to learn from this? The one thing I guess I did, um, I had a friend came to me and he said, I've never heard you say, why did this happen to me? And I said, yeah, that's not my nature. Um, I've never asked that question, even today. Why, why shouldn't it happen to me? I'm a human being. We go through all kinds of issues in this world, right? All kinds of problems and trials and challenges. Why should I be averse to those? And so um, I never asked that question. The question I've always asked is, what am I supposed to learn from this? What am I supposed to do because of this? How can my life and other people's lives be better because of this? Um, I think probably the biggest thing I've learned, Dorothy, if I identified one thing, and I used this word earlier, it's empathy. Um, one of the things that happened is I have, a, I have a band around my chest of nerves that have, they, they, uh, they're heightened. That's the only way I can describe it. You have the same nerves, but I'm aware of mine all the time. They're buzzing and making just, it's just a weird feeling and they tighten up on me and I would be laying in bed at night. This doesn't happen too often now, but sometimes still laying in bed at night and they get so tight. It's kind of like claustrophobia. And I would jump out of bed with this feeling of this is going to crush me. Mm. And I was sitting there one night thinking, Hey, I think this is akin to like an anxiety attack. And I've never, I've heard people talk about anxiety and depression and those kinds of things. I'm, I just haven't dealt with that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm not, I'm still not positive that, that it's the same thing, but I felt like maybe this is a little bit like how somebody feels when they're having some kind of panic attack or anxiety attack. And I didn't, go to a therapist and I don't think I had it to that level or whatever, but I came out of it saying, I, I think maybe I have some understanding that I didn't have before. Mm -hmm. I think when somebody tells me about experiencing that, that I can at least say, yeah, I, I might have some idea of what that's like. And I, I think that's one of the most important things in life is that we, we connect as human beings and we, we understand each other a little bit. Mm -hmm. You know, I, there's so many things in, in what you just said that, that resonate with me so deeply. I mean, the first being gratitude, you know, it, it's so true. And, and you start to, I think, you know, as you are more deliberate about 
practicing gratitude and, you know, just recognizing all of the things in our lives that, that we have to be grateful for, it really does bring in more, you know, it attracts more and it helps you to certainly enjoy the moment and where you are a, a hell of a lot more. And so, you know, that is just absolutely massive. And then being able to have empathy and, and understand people, that's what it's all about. I mean, whether you are, uh, you know, just trying to have a better relationship, uh, you know, with your family or your partner, or if you're building a business, you know, having the empathy to understand your employees, your customers, you know, the people that you're working with, putting yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, there's, there's nothing more powerful for being able to connect and, and really build something meaningful. So, you know, but I really can't begin to thank you enough for everything that you've shared with us today. You know, I think as we wrap up here, my final question to you would be, you know, for the younger entrepreneur, you know, for someone who is in the early stages of their career, you know, and, and regardless of age, you know, but if they're building their first business and, uh, you know, and trying to create, uh, you know, create the kind of, um, of success that you've had in your career, what would be some parting words of guidance or, you know, some advice that you might give that person? Boy, um, Obviously, I, we, we could have another session here yeah. you know, to talk about that. But I, if there was one thing, if there was one characteristic that I think trumps all of the others, um, to me, it's persistence. Uh, I, I think, you know, the world is full of quitters. And many of those quitters, you know, there's the, uh, there's the old stories of the, uh, you know, of the guy who was digging at the gold mine for 20 years and finally quit. And then they found he was, you know, inches away from the, from the big vein or whatever the, the story might be. I think that, you know, life, uh, life's not easy and business is not easy. And we all know stories of people for whom it came easy, but that's not the norm. And so I think, I think the biggest character trait um, is just being persistent. I think it even trumps hard work because we can work hard for a while and that won't be enough. But the ability to stay at something, to, to finish a task, um, to, to just not let anything, anything stop us. And, and there's an old, uh, there's a story that I heard a long time ago that it, it's one of my favorites and I, I never forgot it because of the impact it had on me when I was very young. But I was listening to a speech. It was actually a Native American gentleman who gave the speech. And he said, he said, what if you come to a mountain that is, you know, just in your way? What are you going to do? I said, well, I'll go over it. And he said, now, what if the mountain was so high there was no way to get over it? And I said, well, then I'd go around it. And he said, and what if the mountain was so wide you couldn't get around it? And I said, well, then I'd go through it. And he said, what if the mountain was so thick that you couldn't go through it? I said, well, I'd go under it. And he said, what if the mountain was also so deep you couldn't go under it? And I said, I give up. And he said, you have to get bigger than the mountain. And I just love that because to me, success is not what we achieve. It's who we become in the journey. And success is about us becoming more. And then in the process, helping some others become more as well. 
Wow. Well, I, I can't think of a better place to end it than there. So, Bud, thank you so much, you know, truly from the bottom of my heart, you know, for anyone listening to this, who recognizes the need that they have for, you know, for what you do at Vail or wants to connect with you further, you know, where can people go to learn more? Uh, you can certainly just go to Vail.com. That's pretty easy. V-E-I-L. That's our website. Uh, you can call us, uh, 888-7-ASSETS. It's an easy number to remember, 888-7-ASSETS, and uh, we'd love to help anybody out there. But uh, I have to say, you know, sometimes uh, I meet a lot of people in my business. I have a lot of clients. I inter interact with a lot of people in all the workshops I do, and uh, you've been one of the bright stars. And so I, I just I want to wish you lots of success in your business, and thank you for this opportunity, and, and uh, look forward to maybe doing it again one of these days. Oh my goodness. But thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Thanks, Worthy. All right, everyone, that's our show. Now, before I sign off, I want to genuinely thank you for giving me this gift of your time and attention. If you are getting value from the podcast, the most helpful thing you can do is leave a five-star review and share this with your friends. It truly means the world to be able to spread this message with you. And I'm so grateful for your help. So with that, I hope this episode has inspired you to go out there and do well and do good. And I'll see you back here next week. Thank you.